Hello, my name is Michelle Yanachan, the Wandering Book Collector, and this is my podcast, Conversations with Writers, exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie and Kent. I'm joined by the writer Mona Arshim, discussing her debut novel, Somebody Loves You a coming-of-age story about a British girl born to Indian parents growing up in the suburbs of London. Mona's novel follows a body of work in poetry, including Dear Big Gods, and before that, Small Hands, which won the Ford Prize for Best First Collection. Mona, welcome to The Wandering Book Collector. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Your novel, Somebody Loves You, is set in a similar time and place to when and where you were raised. It's the late 1970s, early 80s. You yourself grew up in West London, born to parents from India. How was your experience of your parents' migration? Well, first of all, I want to say that I am not Ruby, the narrator (laughs) of Somebody Loves You, but um, I felt I really wanted to place it somewhere uh, where the I could evoke the childhood memory of, of you know, of, well, she's a teenager, actually. Um, you know that moment when you're sort of moving between that wonderful energy between sort of moving from child to, to adulthood. And I've actually got two 17-year-olds and, and I feel that very keenly. It's this kind of like wonderful space, uh, that energy I wanted to capture. But I wanted to capture that in a, in a space that actually... I felt reflected my childhood and that was actually a sort of suburban pressurized environment growing up in Hounslow. And so um, although Ruby isn't me, I've placed her in, in a familiar kind of environment, which I thought would be interesting for people actually, and something that uh, you don't see much of. And I wanted to make sure that that was a really, a real experience for Ruby. I wanted to quote a line from the book, which is the inner voice of Ruby, the protagonist of the novel, as you say, and the narrator. And she utters this, something on the shelf of my mother's heart died when she came to England. What is it that that dies, that can die on the journey of the migrant? So interesting that you quoted that line, because I have to tell you, um, the, uh, I, I, Somebody Loves You is quite a short novel. um, And Initially, it was a much longer novel, and I was sort of telling the backstory of Ruby's parents um, and telling, you know, telling them about the migration journey, for example. But um, what I was really wanting to avoid and trying to resist and what I had a real conflict with was I didn't want it to be that sort of story. I think there are lots and lots of stories like that around about the migration story. And I what, what I wanted to do was for... Ruby is a South Asian girl, but she's also, that's not the most interesting thing about her. You know, there are also lots of interesting things about her being South Asian, but there are also other things about her and other ideas actually in the book that I wanted to explore. And I wanted to make sure that the book, um, that that journey didn't eclipse the whole of that narrative. And so I made, in fact, I spoke to my editor about this, you know, when I was editing it, you know, what do I do? We, we um we really toyed with this idea of trying to keep that narrative in. And in the end, that whole migration journey was reduced to that one lyric line. 
uh, which I think speaks to something that lots and lots of people from the diaspora will probably find very familiar. Um, and and I guess, I mean, I know because I've listened to many of these wonderful podcasts that you know there's a, there's this idea of we you know what home is, and and I guess one of the things that it's also doing the book is is asking what home is and. You know, I'm fascinated by that as a writer, what home is, because uh, I think that home is a really kind of contested place. It's, it's one of the most contested questions in our contemporary home, uh, times, actually, what is home? Because it gathers up so much, a whole host of issues around, you know, where where do we belong? Um, how does it feel to be safe? What does it feel to be safe and sound? Um, how do we feel in our bodies, in ourselves? And it challenges our, 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 our identity, and, and and particularly if you are, um, you have migrated here recently, or your family have, and I have. You know, I'm second generation. My parents arrived in the 1960s. I feel like I have a very light-footed. I'm, I don't feel firmly rooted in the way that a lot of my other friends do, and actually, I have a very, very kind of hyphenated identity. You know, and it, it's messy. You know, and untidy, and it's sort of ambiguous you know and I'm racially ambiguous wherever I go you know I I, I and I feel that, that so when you ask that question and I suppose Ruby's asking that question the whole time you know what does it mean to speak what does it mean to be you know have language and then not have language and you know and to be different and to be othered and what does what does all that mean and and I, I guess those are the sort of bigger questions that I'm asking quite a lot of my writing to to sort of you know do that do that do that work if you like and well and so has that kind of your own inheritance or sense of self is is that rested easy with you no 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 not at all but I, I used to think it was an issue you know I used to feel like you know what is it? What is it about being rooted? Is it, is it necessary to feel rooted? It, what about this feeling that you get of estrangement? For example, um, I mean, I did a like a bird project a year ago in a, in in North Norfolk, and I'm not a country girl. I've never really been to the country. My parents interacted with the countryside when we were younger. I remember, and it was very very inhospitable. And and suddenly I'm in this kind of like environment which is you know, this kind of very English environment with birds that I didn't know the names of, but I had to learn the names of and, and feeling feeling quite strange. But I've realized that actually it's an opportunity to, to, to mine something in those areas, actually, of estrangement that is really interesting as a writer. And I, I, feel, I feel very at home in writing in that area of kind of estrangement and ambiguity and untidiness. You know, I, I feel... I feel it's an opportunity to say something. It's a different lens that you can look through. And so, and it, it's, it's, it's actually sort of, weirdly speaking, a sort of gift, really, to be able to do that through that lens. So it, in a sense, estrangement kind of gives you more of a muse. You listen or look hard enough where you can find it anywhere, that kind of the reason to kind of get you grabbing your... Yeah. There's a really wonderful, so the poet jo Joy Harjo, I, she said this, she had this quote, it's a wonderful quote, e a poet, um, even placenessness is a place, you know? Um, and so uh, as a writer, you find that that place in, in, in writing. And, 
and I think there are real opportunities to think about other ideas, you know, about identity and writing and 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 what 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 identity in a place means, particularly at the time that we're living in, you know, and the ideas around identity and belonging are so big at the moment. And, you know, the writers that I admire that are doing that kind of work are are honing that the whole time, you know. It's it's a subtle book, Mona, but there are strong messages throughout and, and in your poetry too. But in this noisy world, I, I wondered if you sometimes thought about if you're loud enough. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and I think that one of the things I'm interested in is silence. You know, it's it's not something I particularly pursued as a subject matter. It's just obviously something I'm interested in. And and I think that I think what it is is that we are so used to hearing this idea, particularly as women and particularly as you know brown women, to speak our truth, to you know to 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 speak into that space because we certainly when I grew up, you know, we were often very silenced and some of the communities that in the com community that I grew up in, although there were great things to celebrate, there were huge issues around how women, girls in particular, were not valued. And so, um, so on the one hand, there's this kind of idea of like speaking and, and being, be making yourself heard. But I do think that, um, there is another side to that, actually, which is that in order to be able to say something, I think you sometimes have to be quiet. And actually to make something good involves listening and and hanging back. And and it's really countercultural to say that, actually, to say, well, you know, there's there's a difference between quiet and silence. Um, and there is because quiet is desired and silence is imposed there's and i and i suppose the, one of the things of the book the novel is trying to do is saying that there's this kind of two poles one is quietude one is silence and ruby is can talk but she's decided she doesn't want to talk she doesn't want to participate in this kind of the the fakeness of the world where women are internalizing kind of these instructions and are and are you know are saying but actually saying nothing so there is subtlety in that. And I, I, I feel maybe there isn't, you know, it's okay to have that subtlety in, in, in the work. I have to say that I, I generally prefer that kind of writing. I just prefer the more subtle peripheral, prefer peripheral work. And there's a lot out there, which is, which is literal. So I think it's okay to have work that pushes at the edges a bit and asks us these questions and maybe in a different way. You're right, silence is often imposed, but in this case, as you put it, the protagonist, Ruby, is choosing to be mute. And, and I, I, I read that as a kind of activism rather mm. than silencing. And But I wanted to ask this of you as, as a former human rights lawyer yeah. um, and then a poet, um, and which we must get into too, and, and now a novelist, about deploying silence as a tool of communication. Yeah. I mean, it's not something that I even think about doing, but I do think that there is there is a power, I think, in being able to understand what is happening to us in, in our society. So just to give you a really good example of that is that we 
we we speak and and a lot of it is important but a lot of our speech is sequestered and sold for example our our our, our attention is constantly sequestered and then sold so i think we just have to be aware of that and i think that one of the things i guess i'm trying to say is that it's really important particularly at the, the time that we're living in we have to be able to say and 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 speak of course we need speech but i think we also have to have time and, and to listen in order to say something when i did the project in in cly in norfolk it was very clear to me that what was required of me was absolute solitude there was no way that I was going to make anything or be able to respond in any way as an artist to the world around me un uh, until I was listening, you know, and an acoustic, uh, privileging the kind of um, the ear over the, the the eye, which is much more visual. And so otherwise I would make nothing, you know, it would just be impossible. So I suppose it's a sort of, um, it's an artist tool, you know, it's it's a tool that we can use and and actually, one of the things we have to do if we want to disrupt what's going on is to 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 make things and 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 i believe in language and you know i i think it's 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 a way of communicating something in a subtle way but it is very very subtle and i i i feel like there are different ways that we can we can bring ourselves to the to the world that we're now in and having to respond to so the project that you're referring to, which is this, you were a writer in residence at Clay Next the Sea, which I just yeah, wondered. it's Clay. It's, yeah, I, so oh. I, I kept calling it Clay, and then I kept being, um, I, I sort of called it that for three months, and it was all sort of under lockdown. And then I got there, and then somebody who lived there listened to me say it ten times, and said, "You know, it's Clay," <laughs> as in I. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for not letting me do that for three months. <laughs> Well, it's this North Norfolk, uh, which is such, yeah. such a wonderfully English name. Yeah. And there's a nature reserve there, and you were creating this multimedia poetry collection. You were there pulling together your voice and imagery, but also birdsong and the sound mm. of the wind, I think is what I heard, and waves. Yeah. Um, and I I wondered if it was that kind of foreignness, because as you said, you, you know, you're, you're used to a more urban or suburban, you yeah. know, looking further back in your upbringing environment and and does that allow kind of a more acute sense of observation or observation with the ear oral observation a u r a l yeah I mean, it's really fascinating because i my mother tongue I, I can't think of another term for it because i hate the, the the term mother tongue tongue but the language i use first was punjabi um so english is an acquired language for me i acquired it later on and I think that does something to your language and um, how you treat your how you treat language, because I wanted to make sure that my acquired language. So it's really interesting when you talk to other people that have got have been through the British school system or you know other systems that are similar, which actually devalue the mother tongue. Um, and and then so I put my mother tongue sort of on the back burner. I put I think I talk of it as my back back of my body voice it sort of became deferred and and stilted actually and, and and it was I didn't really use it very much and then and then I sort of used English and of course I wanted to be really good at English because that this I wanted to show that I could this acquired language it was valued was really you know so you so I I use language I became a lawyer I use language now and English language now and and of course 
I think I never really grieved, I think, for the language I left behind, and uh, which I stopped using. And then I got to, to Cly and I was having to just transcribe birdsong and, you know, cause I was there and interacting and listening. And it was so strange how my mother tongue kept coming to the, to the forefront and I could hear Punjabi because actually, you know, birdsong doesn't have any syntax or anything. It's nonsense, but because you don't, because it's unfettered from syntax, you hear things that are really strange. And um, I suddenly felt I was hearing things that were, bird you know like Punjabi and um, I went home and I spoke to my mum about how what these birds might be saying and, and it was just a really sweet little kind of project because um what it you know because I wrote these poems but I also felt like it aroused something in my body which had something also to do with the fact that I did feel quite foreign in that world it was a really strange world it's very it's right on the North Sea it's in it's in incredibly barren um but yet and actually it's falling into the sea it won't be there in 40 years time and and yet you're at the edge of the sea and these migratory birds these really rare migratory birds come and nest there you know and and you're watching them come in and you know these lapwings come in in pairs and making these really strange sounds and that aroused something in me i think and um that i was very unexpected so I, I found it, it was fascinating, fascinating. So we've touched on this, Mona, that you, that you haven't always, well, I mean, I'm not sure if I should say you've, never, you've not always been a poet, because probably you have, but, but nevertheless, <laughs> from a career point of view, you were a lawyer for a while. Yeah. And, um, of course, it's quite tempting to draw comparisons with your career choices because of the power of words in law and the power <laughs> on the page, yeah. love of language, which I you know, which is so obvious through in your work. But I also wanted to ask about the skill of persuasion. If you felt that was seeded in your first career and if that remains a, a part of who you are. I don't think so at all. In fact, I think the opposite. I think that um, I, don't, I don't think I want any of my... If I see a poem that is trying to persuade me to do anything, even if it's trying to persuade me that it's trying to ask me to think about something good I don't want I'm not interested I don't think that's a job of a poem you know the job of the poem is never really to have an agenda as soon as it has an agenda it's out <laughs> you know and I think there are very notable exceptions to that but I think that you know you can't put that on a poem I think the poem has its own destination and you know, but that there's a different thing between that and 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 you know me having my particular values that I think I think are very much in 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 the texture of the poems that I write. That's very different because I do believe in 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 the dignity of human human beings. You know, I I believe in feeling. I think feeling is first and foremost, and um, I think that we have to privilege that over everything. I think that one of the things that poems, that one of the things that they do really well, actually a poem does, is that it um, it bypasses the intellect, actually. And because, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't need to go through that, navigate that field because it goes straight to something very primal, you know, and pre-literary. And, and I think that 
that is so different from like a human rights document or human or human rights litigation. It could be further away, I think, from from that world. But yeah, you're right. Language is is you know, I mean, it's I'm still in language, and I understand the power of language and how a word can be a word or a metaphor or an image can be loaded with so much and and that's powerful you know that's a that's, there's a power in that and um um a force in that i think in, in, a, in a very very short you know in the economy of a poem you know to be able to to load something up in a metaphor and ferry that feeling into into three lines or something you know or a tercet and pass that on I think that's the most, I mean, that's why I'm in it. I'm in it. I'm I'm addicted to that. And I get a hit out of, you know, reading, reading poems that do that for me. And I would love it if my poetry could do that for other people. I'm thinking about three lines of a poem and comparing it to like a swathe of <laughs> documentation. <laughs> the differences are just so immense compared to you know, my temptation to draw similarity, but, and and suddenly the liberation. Yes, yeah. Um, you know, it is interesting to me that you've gone from law to poetry, and then you've moved to a, a novel, which arguably, traditionally and historically has kind of has more structure, more plot. Yeah. Are you kind of, is there something about the confines as well? Yeah, maybe. I... I don't know. I sort of feel like I tricked myself into writing this this novel, and I really do mean that. I started off with this voice, and I just slavishly followed this voice. And I I thought, okay, well maybe it's. So let me just see what it is. I investigate. I was curious about what it was, and um, and the more I investigated, and and I sort of made this decision that I was going to write her every day she became it was clear that she was it was it was ruby it was her voice and and i committed to writing it and it just became bigger and bigger and we weren't in in kansas anymore <laughs> we were in we were in a different world and um it was the world of 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 the novel um and so i trick i think i literally tricked myself and then when i realized i was writing a novel i just thought well this isn't going to be like a normal novel this is not going to be a conventional novel and how do i write it and i just i really felt like the the way that I wanted to write it was in a in a sort of poetic tradition, and um, so I, so I ended up with these kind of prose sequence. I've been interested in the prose poem for quite a while, actually. I was really interested in what the prose poem could do. That kind of really weird. Um, uh, I think I can't remember. I think it was the poet Charles Simich who, who said it's um it's like a a cat that barks. <laughs> you know it sort of does these things and you don't understand why it's doing these things so it has all the kind of um trappings of a poem really but it sort of looks like a like prose and so you you're, you're kind of you're not very you're not sure-footed you're not sure where you are you know and I like that I like what was what you could do to the reader and destabilize them and so I loved using the, the prose poems sort of sequence and to make this longer um kind of novel sort of stitched it was like stitching that like stitched it together um and it sort of seemed to just work um the hardest thing to do actually because I wasn't used to voice was to make sure that the voice was consistent as she was growing up because as soon as you decide you're going to have a voice-driven novel and basically just you know you only really hear her her voice her interiority 
the the reader is very very aware that um and and, and you know that you you know you're, you're where where the voice is heading and that you have to make sure there's a little contract with the reader that you you're ensuring that that voice is kept up and consistent so that was the hardest thing to do Right. Well, it's fascinating to hear that it didn't. You didn't embark on this as a novel. It kind of no, not at all transcended into a novel. Or I don't. I'm going to be cynical here and imagine some agent saying, "You've got to write a novel." No, no, not at all. Not at all. I, 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 I didn't. I didn't. It wasn't like that at all. And I, I think it might have been easier to write it like that in some ways. But I sort of fell into it. I literally fell into it. And there is no um, other way of of describing it but it was a sort of happy a accident really you know <laughs> well I mean for, for the audience who hasn't read it it is this hybrid um mm -hmm. poetry meets prose and there's fragmentation and yeah and there's multiple perspective too so kind of getting away from the traditions of a novel um for example there's the chapter narrated by Ina yes yeah um that's Ruby's dead neighbor who speaks from heaven. Um, I, I wanted to ask you if you, if your complex complexities and, and identities, as, as we alluded to earlier, allow you to transition between perspective in a particular way. Yeah, I think maybe, maybe that's right. You can wear different hats. Um, you can, you can, you can be a, a sort of lighter traveler you have less luggage you know what i mean you don't have to haul your own luggage around when you're you're delving into other characters because you're tra you're traveling so lightly and so you can step into into those those worlds and um i mean i really i mean i'm i'm going to write a second novel but and i think that i really like the idea of traveling into other people's minds and and finding Find, you know, I'm curious. I'm ju just genu just genuinely curious about. I was genuinely curious about this this older woman in the in the story, and and actually, we very little. We we spend very little time with you know people that are much older in in stories, and and maybe at the end of their lives, and what they might be thinking, which is why I went to to sort of go go to her really because I was interested in sort of well, actually, if we go even further, and then then what it would be like for somebody who had you know alzheimer's and then die and and then suddenly you know remember who they are or or have that clarity back and i just was sort of intrigued by that really so i sort of tentatively was in you know was tentatively sort of curious and wanted to know what it would feel like and it was really interesting writing i could have written much more about ina yes i wondered if she might be a character in the next one you know how some people Supplant. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I haven't really thought about it, but maybe. I want more of that. I will ask you what's next later. But <laughs> I so if Ruby's refuge is her is her silence, is do you have somewhere like that? You know, it's a really, really lovely question to ask because I think that we don't think about these things. The things that actually are good for us. And when I if push came to shove and someone even said to me, what is home for you? I would say that the place where I feel like really at home are probably with my female South Asian friends. And because there's, I don't have any, there's like, 
all these shortcuts you don't have to explain you know anything there isn't that kind of it's like luggage you don't have to bring your luggage in you leave it at the door and so I think it's there's an easy an ease in which you can step into that community of women you know and I I guess that's where I I feel very safe and happy and I don't have to I don't have to explain anything it can be quite it it's quite sometimes you know I have a, like a very hyphenated identity I'm a Londoner I'm a, I'm, I'm a woman I'm South Asian I'm a mother you know and I have I carry all these identities and actually I think that sometimes it's quite it's hard work you know sometimes just 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 explaining <laughs> and not having to explain just go to a space where none of that is having to you know you just go as yourself and it's you're sort of accepted and there's there's that there's no barriers and no veil you know um you don't need that protection on and you're not hyper vigilant you know which is i think another thing that i think is is interesting about traveling as a, as a female you know person of color um so none of that and then suddenly you're in this space that's just you know it's accepting and and open and lovely you know beautiful is movement and and a sense of travel and journeying something that that informs and provokes your work on a really basic level i think in order to be able to to make anything and to write anything i have got to have some sort of movement i think that um i really write well on trains for i love train journeys um i write really really well on trains and i i don't know what it is i think it's a combination of the 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 the, the what you when you're looking out the window and those kind of you know those flickering it's like there's there's flickering images passing and you're not being able to leave <laughs> the train so you have no choice you have to just be writing because then you can't do you can't be distracted you have to just write you just have your notebook and then you you can write but i also feel as if my best poems have come from after from write from writing when i'm walking and lines come into my head when i'm walking in fact I have had not a lot, not this hasn't happened a lot, by the way, but um I, I call them tornado poems. Poems literally come to me, like whole, whole, you know, a lot like a long one came a few years ago. And um it just swept me up whilst I was walking. In fact, I was I think I might have been running and it just swept me up. And there was something about the propulsion of movement. It was about my brother who, and I think he was, it was five years since his death. And I had written a book about some, some energies about him. And I, I was, was just, you know, maybe thinking about it. And I didn't want the poem, actually. I actually didn't want it because it was very, very, it's a difficult poem. There's a lot of anger in the poem. It was a much more explicit poem than I'm used to writing. And um, I got home and I wrote it. I got the, grabbed some printer paper and I wrote the whole poem down. And it has it's, and it's been published like that in these really long lines, so long that the publisher had to check, had to turn the book around because I, I just would not compromise on the line length. You know, I just said no. This is how it's meant to be. And that came out of like just a, a run. So I think there's this idea that we sit at our desk, being inert and sort of you know still and that's important but i think the gathering of something i think you need to have movement i think that 
I think it's it's the body, mind, and 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 um, writing hand together. You know, they just we need that connection. I mean, I do anyway. I don't know how you do it, but that's how I do it. <laughs> yeah, planes and trains. Um, but you have a hell of a memory <laughs> to get a long poem down. I'm very, I'm full of envy that that they come to you. It, 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 it's literally never happened. It's like once I I got a poem in a dream, I woke up, I remembered the poem, I wrote it down thinking, gosh, maybe this is quite early on in my like po uh, poetry career. And I just thought, well, maybe this is what happens. Maybe just poems are just given to you in dreams, but it's never happened again. <laughs> it, does, it sounds to me like it's like the poem, rather than you conjuring, it, it kind of has its own life force and it comes that in that direction is that you know, do you know what it is i think that for me i think i've become very good at knowing what the conditions are for being open to a poem mm. to, you know because that's what you can do you can make you can understand you get to a point where you, you sort of think well these are the things that have worked before for me where a poem has come and and sort of making sure that you're doing all those things um but actually you cannot direct a poem into your into your notebook you just you just cannot and and the times where I've tried to impose myself on the poem it's always gone really wrong and I can see it I mean I've judged so many competitions now and I can see it in other people's writing I can see how you know the poem has you know you've 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 got in the way of the poem the worst thing you can do is do that but that's not very helpful is it because actually if you want to be a poet you want to just be able to sit down and write um but I think you know, I think you just have to trust that it will come at some point. And, you know, it's some, it usually does, usually does. I must stop trying so hard. <laughs> um, Mona, what, um, what is next? I, I wanted to ask if you feel more at home with poetry or, or with novel writing or both now that you've done both. Yeah, I mean, I'm a poet and I, everything comes from that you know there's a there's a there's a fund, kind of fundamental philosophy of poem making that I think inflects everything I do you know and and that includes my my novel and writing some essays at the moment about kind of empathy and language and all the things we've been talking about actually and you know and it's heavily influenced by poetry and poets and you know that I've I've loved and and talk about and I, so I, I really feel as if I've, it's always my starting, it's, it's my sort of starting point and my home, I guess, poetry. So is that what we'll read next? Is that, is another collection coming? Yes, yeah. yeah, so it's a third collection of poems that are coming, but I think probably the essays will, and the poems will be ready around the same sort of time. So maybe, maybe there'll be two books that come in, in quite they'll be they'll be coming in quite close together maybe so but that's unusual because I don't normally write like that but I also think that when you're writing you're very porous so actually there are ideas between the two books that are you know mixing together which is actually interesting too and is there anything you can tell me about what's underpinning a lot of what we're talking about today I mean I I I'm I'm interested in you know what's what what are the deficiencies in language and what what are the deficits and how what language can do I guess to 
to to you know what language role can what role language plays what role poetry plays in meeting that deficit particularly at the moment where there's um, a real rupturing of empathy i think in in the language we're using and and also you know the right are using the the kind of the normal kind of tools of empathic language is being kind of hijacked so we have to find new ways of making making those those honing that language and thinking about new ideas for for things and and so i guess it's just an interrogation there's no real there's no answers uh, but i just think it's just an interesting provocation of where what language is for and what we can do i look forward to grabbing that as soon as we're allowed mona ashi thank you for joining me on the wandering book collector it's a pleasure thank you and my thanks to the supporter of this podcast abercrombie and kent goodbye